Martin Scorsese has in a movie coming out in the spring called Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's a fascinating true story based on a book of the same name. And they bought 60 blankets from me that are going to appear pretty much in every scene from what I understand. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. Once a comedy writer, Barry Friedman is one of those collectors turned dealer stories that we really love to hear about. And what's more fascinating is that he's really the only person dealing strictly in this category, which happens to be antique Indian trade and camp blankets. This is one of those things where you've definitely seen them in passing, but you probably had no idea exactly what you were looking at. In fact, one of the original makers, Pendleton, has brought Barry in as a consultant to help recreate some of them to this day. Barry has found what I would like to call a healthy balance between collecting these for himself and making it his own business. In fact, he's Ralph Lauren's go-to when it comes to supplying these for his personal ranch in Colorado, as well as all of his double RL stores all around the world. So if you've ever stumbled into a double RL and seen these blankets floating around, well, those are Barry's. Barry was also contacted recently to supply all the blankets for a huge Hollywood movie starring some of the biggest names in the industry. He's truly an expert in this stuff, so much so that he's now written two books on the topic. He knows more about this stuff than you would ever think is even possible. So without further ado, this is Barry Friedman for Collector's Gene Radio. Barry Friedman from Arizona, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. We actually had a little bit of a hiccup on our recording, so we're starting over from square one, so I appreciate it. Not a problem. I'll be brilliant again. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you will. So let's uh, let's go back to, to ground zero. So for, for those that don't know you, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. Uh, well, I was a professional comedy writer for my whole working career, and I'm retired now, and I'm no longer funny. And uh, I've been dealing in American Indian blankets since 1969. So it's, I think it's 53 years, if my math is correct. And I guess I have to explain, because I deal in a type of Indian blanket that is very unique. These were made for the Indians, not by the Indians. That's a little confusing for most people, because most people are familiar with handmade Navajo Indian weavings. The blankets that I deal in are called trade blankets, and they first started making them in 1892. These were made by commercial woolen mills run by Caucasians, and uh, they made blankets with what they thought were Indian designs, sold them to federally licensed Indian traders who had their shops set up on the Indian reservations. And so they would be in the Indian trader's store, and the Indians would come in with whatever they had to barter, and they would walk out sometimes with one of these blankets. And they became very, very popular with the American Indians, And they still are to this day. So the only surviving manufacturer is Pendleton Woolen Mills in Pendleton, Oregon. 
and I am the Vintage Blanket Consultant to Pendleton, and I've written two books on these blankets. Amazing. And, and those books are called Chasing Rainbows and Still Chasing Rainbows, correct? Yeah, Still Chasing Rainbows was a brilliant title that uh, I still get teased about. I literally tried to think of a title for about five years, and that's all I could come up with. So like I said, I used to be funny, but I'm not anymore. So you were at one point one of the largest collectors, if you will, of these blankets, and now you've kind of transitioned into kind of single-handedly largest dealer in these. Is that correct? Well, I'm the only dealer that specializes in them in the world. There's other people who sell them. Uh, I have a very friendly competitor in Oklahoma, a lovely woman, and uh, she is primarily a quilt dealer but also sells these blankets. I'm the only total specialist on the planet, and I was the largest collector at one time. I had, I think, at my peak about 1,200 blankets, uh, but I found out that colleges wouldn't take them for college tuition, and I wouldn't be able to send my children to college. So I started selling them, and uh, fortunately, my children now have educations. <laughs> nah, you should have kept them. <laughs> you know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> and so what? what's the specific era of these blankets that you collect in, and I guess subsequently why this era? Well... They started making them in 1892. There was a company called CAPS, C-A-P-P-S, in Jacksonville, Illinois. They were the first manufacturers. And the era for serious collecting ends, in my opinion, in 1942, uh, which is when Pendleton was commandeered by the government to make goods for the war effort. So instead of Indian blankets, they made army blankets and sleeping bags for the armed forces. Uh, and so they made no Indian blankets at all. So that to me is sort of the golden era, that 50 years, 1892 to 1942. Uh, after that, I lose interest and my collectors lose interest as well. Although in Pendleton's defense, they make gorgeous contemporary blankets. The American Indians still love them. It's just not really my area of interest. No, I mean, uh, vintage stuff definitely has a lot more charm than modern stuff, that's for sure. Well, it's more challenging. Obviously, I could walk into a Pendleton store and leave with as many blankets as I could afford. The kind of blankets that I'm looking for, sometimes I can go months without a single one, and then other times they rain from the heavens. So it's all serendipity. I never know what I'm going to get from one day to another. And so you mentioned that you're a consultant now for Pendleton. So in in terms of that relationship, are they coming to you for advice and design expertise to remake the old stuff? Or are they buying vintage stuff themselves? Well, they do not buy vintage stuff. When I have collaborated with them, I particularly collaborated on a series called the Tribute Series, which is uh, designs that I supplied from other companies that Pendleton reproduced. I've also brought some blankets to their attention of their own that they were unaware they had made. And I, I think probably the biggest home run they've had is a blanket that uh, was originally called the Aspen. Now they've changed the name to the Silver Bark. And that was a Pendleton blanket that was made around 1910. 
and it has sort of escaped their notice uh, after many years. And so I brought them a rediscovered version, and uh, it became a very, very popular blanket for them. So they're pretty wonderful people there. Uh, they didn't have a real good understanding of their former product because they had had several fires at the woolen mill and changes in personnel, and um, they weren't that aware of their own history as far as individual designs were concerned. So I've brought a lot of those to their attention over the years. Very interesting. Are there fakes, you know, are there fake Pendletons? Are there fake caps, blankets? I mean, how do you timestamp these when you're looking for them? Well, there's a lot of knockoffs, uh, and there are, as we just discussed, reproductions. Well, reproduction can have very fractional value compared to the original. You just sort of have to be familiar with them. It's sort of like a knockoff classic car. There are, you know, replicas, but they're worth peanuts compared to what the original is. So it's just experience more than anything else. Um, Pendleton does reproduce a lot of their own patterns, and if they're used hard, they can look old pretty quickly. So it's just a matter, really, again, of having looked at them and understanding them and knowing what's been reproduced. And and how can you personally timestamp something that you're collecting, or maybe you can't, but the difference between a 1905 blanket and a 1917 blanket? Yeah, well, that's a little tough because some of the patterns were made for that long a period. So if, let's say, a blanket was in a catalog from 1911, I'm just picking that just uh, randomly, the blanket could have been made for the company five or six years before that, five or six years after that. Mainly what we know is sort of a rough idea of how long these companies were in business and through catalogs, we can sort of guess the period of time a particular pattern was made. But it all is a rough guess. We do not have exact times when particular patterns were made. So as you mentioned, there's there's a huge misconception with these uh, blankets, if you will. And most people think that they were made by the Indians for people like us, but it was actually opposite. Were the Indians making anything, you know, in return? Absolutely. Well, the Navajos are the only tribe that has ever taken sheep's wool and woven it into blankets or rugs. And basically what happened is commercial dyes became available. And that was the catalyst for massive Navajo rug production because they no longer had to go find vegetal items or, in some cases, beetles to make the color red. They used what were called cochineal beetles. They would have to smash beetles to get the red color. To get blue, they used fermented urine. Unbelievable. Uh, So with commercial dyes available, they didn't have to go through all that laborious uh, work and, uh, and urinate a lot in some cases. Right. So this prompted uh, Indian traders. Indian traders had sort of an odd thing. They were spending money to get merchandise to trade to the Indians. 
And so they needed to put cash back in the system. So one day they had a bright idea. Oriental rugs had become the rage in the eastern United States. And some Indian trader that remains anonymous had the bright idea that Indians could weave something that looked like Oriental rugs. And people would put them on the floor and they would be successful. So you have to understand that before this time, the Navajos wove very, very lightweight blankets, not rugs, blankets. Now, the difference between a rug and a blanket is weight and size. You can take your rug and try to put it around your body and you're going to have a hard time. Whereas if you take the blanket off your bed, you can put it around yourself and uh, it looks pretty good and uh, it's transportable. So the Navajos had never made anything as heavy and durable as a rug. So this was a white guy's idea. So they started trying to sell these rugs to Americans, the traders, and they caught on. So the Navajos switched their weaving entirely from the old style blankets to these new heavyweight rugs. Well, they still wanted to wear blankets themselves. And so they would make a rug and bring it to a trading post and they would leave with a lightweight, commercially made woolen blanket from one of these companies that made them for the Indians. So basically since 1892, Navajo Indians make rugs for white guys and white guys make blankets for Indians. <laughs> Interesting. For me, like the coolest thing about these blankets and, and even rugs, I mean, of this era is all the variations, all the colors, on a painting may never make sense to somebody. But when you put all these blankets in a room, you know, in one single room with each other, they all look amazing. Well, they're very spectacular. Some of the patterns are absolutely transcendent and some are so complicated that you can't even imagine how they even designed them or what the designer was thinking. I mean, there's also colossal failures where you just go, okay, that blanket must've been made for a clown. So, you know, it seems like a lot of it was random. It's whatever dyes they had on hand at the time uh, in the factories. Uh, but some of, some of the designs are absolutely timeless. They're so beautiful. Um, and some of these things were extraordinarily rare because uh, at the time they were highly replaceable. So nobody thought to keep them really. Uh, and they didn't have a lot of value. Navajo rugs have a long history. Navajo rugs and blankets have a long history of being valuable. So they were kept and protected and conserved. These blankets, not so much. And so anything that survives from 100 years old plus, it's almost a miracle that it's still here. And uh, those are the blankets I'm looking for. And they don't show up every day. That's for sure. They're pretty hard to find. And a lot of the blankets that I know were made, because I have pictures of them in catalogs, I've never seen a single example in the real world. So those are the ones that I sort of, uh, you know, spend my life looking for. Those are sort of the holy grail. To kind of ask a twofold question based on that, one is, I mean, are you sourcing these these blankets and, and products from places like, you know, eBay or trade shows and, and auctions and that sort of stuff? And two being that they are from at least 100 years ago, I mean, have you ever came across duplicates of anything? 
Well, yes, I have run across duplicates, uh, but that's usually only in the case of very successful blanket that did so well that the companies would keep it in inventory and keep making it. They operated like any commercial company. You put a product out, and if it sells, you keep making it, and if it's a dud, you don't. So really, the great rarities are probably blankets that were complete failures on the market. As far as sourcing them, Gosh, you know, I get them anywhere I can. Um, you know, eBay is not a primary source. There are very few good blankets, collector's grade blankets, in my opinion, that show up on eBay. And eBay descriptions are usually wildly inaccurate. The dating is completely wrong. They do not uh, reflect the real condition of the blanket because people don't know what to look for as far as condition. Uh, so, eBay, you know, if I get five or six blankets a year from eBay, that's a successful year. Most of my blankets find me uh, because I'm the specialist in the field. I'm very well connected in the antique business and also the much more specialized American Indian business. I do four or five Indian shows a year. I know all the dealers. It's sort of a fraternity of people. We all know each other. And most of the guys that run into them usually contact me because I am the specialist and I can tell them what they have and what it's possibly worth. Barry, I think one of my favorite achievements of yours on your resume or cover letter, uh, whichever way you want to look at it, is your relationship with someone who's a personal hero to a lot of people, um, and that's Ralph Lauren. And you and him may not be best buddies by any means, but I mean, you source, have have sourced and probably still do all the blankets for his incredible ranch in Colorado. Um, and subsequently, you also source all the blankets for his double RL store. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, we are not best friends. In fact, we have never met. I have dealt exclusively with Ralph's buyer for decades, and Ralph has never uh, has never <laughs> lowered his social standing by meeting me. <laughs> I've been invited to his ranch, but people are only invited to Ralph's ranch unless he personally invites them. You're only invited when he's not there, because That's when the fun he, in that, <laughs> yeah, when he's there, it's him and his family and close friends, and he doesn't want any interlopers like myself. But that's an interesting relationship. My other relationship with a very famous person that I've never met is Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese has a movie coming out in the spring called Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's a fascinating true story based on a book of the same name. And this movie is going to star Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, and I'm missing a couple other people, but... It's a major, major movie, and they bought 60 blankets from me that are going to appear pretty much in every scene, from what I understand. Uh, I didn't meet Martin. Uh, he sent his costume designer here, and she spent several days here selecting blankets for the film. What a great experience. Well, I'm looking forward to the movie. I love Martin Scorsese movies, uh, and I'm going to like this one a lot more, I think. I I can imagine why. And so are they asking you to source specific blankets that that you know you know of? I mean, how difficult was it for you to go and find these blankets for them? Well, this was easy because I had an enormous inventory of blankets and 
they wanted blankets specifically from the 1920s, and I had many. So um, it was my job to tell them what type of blankets the Indians, American Indians, would have been wearing. This, this movie is specifically about the Osage Indians who live in Oklahoma, and I'm very well versed in what most tribes preferred. And so I pointed out the blankets that the Osage would have used during that time period and uh, filled the order uh, pretty easily. So they bought these from you. I mean, are they asking, are you asking them to buy them back after the movie or? Uh, actually, what I suggested is that they donate them to uh, a museum that is actually owned by the Osage Indians. I thought that would be the best thing uh, for the blankets would be to be in a museum in Osage country. And uh, hopefully that's going to be done. They haven't kept me up to date. I'm, I'm out of that part of the equation, but uh, hopefully that will be the result. Do you remember how many blankets he bought from you for the ranch? Oh, gosh, I have no idea because they buy a lot of blankets from me and they don't designate which ones are going to go to the ranch. So I can't really answer that question. Um, gotcha. So you're getting POs and it's it's just going some something for Ralph. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's something for Ralph and some obviously are for personal use, but the great majority of them are certainly for resale in their double RL stores, which is where they sell vintage merchandise of all types. That would be very cool. It's a great idea. And so how, ma how many blankets have you kept for yourself now that you're not necessarily a collector of these anymore? I'm sure you still see stuff that is kind of undeniable and it's probably hard to let go. Well, I've sort of, uh, I've sort of made the transition quite successfully to being a dealer and I always want collectors to know that they are not getting my rejects, that I'm building my own collection and they're picking from what's left. I decided a long time ago when I broke up my initial enormous collection that I was going to be a real dealer and offer everyone everything that I got, which I do. I have 16 blankets that are on sort of a rack system in my office and those seem to have just stayed there for years and years and years i never saw anything off of them none of them are particularly valuable some well i shouldn't say that some are quite valuable but others, but others aren't they're just there because i'm too lazy to do anything with them or replace them so i guess that's my collection which is 16 blankets but i always have at least 250 blankets to sell and some of those are one-of-a-kind, spectacular masterpieces. Would you say it's pretty easy to sell these blankets? I mean, do you know who to go to and, and who's looking for these at all times? Well, not at all times, of course. Uh, but I have a client list, certainly. And there's certain clients that want certain kinds of blankets. And there's also clients that want specific blankets in a specific condition. Um, I've spoiled most of my customers because I'm a condition freak. And if it's not perfect, I tend to shy away from them or at least not value them as highly. And I shouldn't. Anything other than perfection is a step down in value. But I'm such a freak for condition that I've sort of 
spread that mantra to my collectors. So they're all spoiled rotten. Unless the blankets are absolutely perfect, they don't even want to talk to me. So, uh, <laughs> so you 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 don't in fact buy any blankets that become available to you, even if they fall under your category or era that you do you know deal in. Um, condition is on the forefront of that. Absolutely. I'm really picky about condition. So a blanket could be extraordinarily rare, but if it's a wreck, uh, it's of no use to me. It's sort of, I guess the analogy would be, if you have a Ferrari that's been in a head-on collision, it's a Ferrari, but it's scrap. And the same thing holds true for any kind of collectible. Condition is everything. Uh, Rarity is, you know... uh, you know, that's debatable, but condition is undeniable. If it's a wreck, it's a wreck. Right. And being that these are obviously vintage and can be very rare, I mean, you can still use them though, correct? Oh, they're totally usable. Um, most people, you know, tend not to use them. They're wool, so there's, you know, women in particular, they find them a little scratchy. Uh, but there's another type of blankets that we haven't discussed at all. And those are called camp blankets, which I also deal in, and they're quite beautiful. And these were cotton blankets. Basically, they were a ripoff of the wool trade blankets. And most of these were sold through department stores. Uh, and they're called camp blankets because kids would take them to summer camp. Uh, and these would cost a dollar as opposed to the 9 or $10 for a wool blanket. And I have many, many collectors for these. They can be really spectacular in design. And again, it's pretty much the same time period. The trade blankets were earlier, uh, 1892 they started. Uh, With the cotton blankets, they started more like about 1910 or 11. And um, the blankets were huge sellers until about... Uh, I would say the 1940s. And then they started to become really kitschy and they started using synthetic materials in them. The ones that I buy and sell are 100% cotton and uh, really beautiful. And they're less money than the wool trade blankets. Uh, the top of the line on a cotton blanket, 1000 to 1500 but most of them are far less. You can buy a really beautiful cotton blanket for five or $600 that's spectacular. And some, you know, the less rare ones you can buy for a couple hundred dollars. Wow, amazing. What's the best way for somebody to care for these blankets? I mean, are you, are you sending them to the dry cleaners? Are you, you know, hanging them up and, and letting them air out? What's, what's the best move? Because, you know, I'm sure some of them, haven't been kept well um, in people's homes, you know, all these years or in people's other collections? And Well, there's a number of things you can do. Uh, the biggest problem with a wool blanket is a moth. Uh, and um, depending where you live, moths can be a real problem or not. Uh, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't have a problem with them. Uh, if I lived on a lake in Wisconsin, I'd be a little concerned. Uh, so um, I avoid moth-eaten blankets, uh, so I don't have them in inventory, but they are a real problem for a lot of people, and there are things you can do. A cedar chest is not one of them. A ce- moths are only repelled by freshly cut cedar. Cedar chests are sort of one of the great hoaxes of all time. Uh, you can put blankets in a cedar chest, and they will get devoured by moths. Um, so... Uh, 
I don't send them to a dry cleaner. I send them to a specialist in generally oriental rugs. Uh, it isn't about washing a blanket. Uh, now you have to understand these are wool. So wool is going to shrink and they will shrink even at a dry cleaners an inch or two. Uh, where they won't shrink is in the hands of an experienced oriental rug cleaner. Uh, it isn't it isn't the washing of the rug that can be the issue. It's drying it properly. If you dry it properly, you won't get shrinkage. Wool is going to shrink if it's exposed to water. So um, I send them to specialists. Otherwise, you're going to end up with, in some cases, a doily instead of a blanket. Bear, if someone wanted to buy a blanket from you, would you say that your website's the best place? No, the best place is to give me a call on the phone and then come and see them in person because I can explain the differences between the blankets. I can answer any question, and if I don't know the answer, I'll bluff very effectively. But I've got an enormous range of blankets here, and it, they can sort of fit almost any price range. Um, and I can explain the difference, why one blanket is more than another, why one is maybe more common or rarer than another. Um, and there were a lot of different companies that made these early on. And I can show the differences in the type of patterns that they did, the color palette they used. So I like to mentor people because I am really passionate about these things. It's not just about money. In fact, money is sort of the last thing I think about. I really love these blankets. I've written two books about them. And I wrote the books not to get, you know, I'm not Stephen King. These aren't going to sell millions of copies. <laughs> you know, a movie or a play is going to be made. You know, I wrote the books because I want to spread information on these. I think they're magnificent. I think they're historical. Uh, American Indians still treasure them. And so I like to share information. And so when people come here, there's no obligation to buy whatsoever. I want to show them what I have and explain what I have. And if they're interested and want to buy something, that's fantastic. And if they don't, uh, hopefully they'll leave knowing a little more about them and appreciating them. I love it. And would you say the best way to get a copy of your two books is by giving you a call as well? Yeah. Uh, my first book is out of print. I'm revising it. It was originally 304 pages and I'm going to beef it up to 450 or 500. And uh, so that is an ongoing project. Uh, my second book is pretty much, well, I'm pretty proud of my second book. The pictures are much better than my first book, to tell you the truth, because we had digital cameras and we did for the first book. So the pictures are magnificent. And my daughter is a professional television writer. She edited it for me under threat by me. And there isn't a single typo in the entire book, which is unheard of. So it is unheard of. <laughs> yeah, I'm really proud of the second book. And that one is available for me. The first one is out of print and it sells for far more than it retailed for originally. Originally, it sold for 50 bucks. Um, most of the copies that come up for sale are. 175 or more, and I've seen them as high as, you know, two or 3,000, but I think those people are dreaming. <laughs> I've, uh, I definitely am not going to lie and say that I don't have my eBay search for uh, the first book, Chasing Rainbows, set up. So, 
Well, it does show up. There's there's a copy on there now, I think, for $175, and I think that's the only copy on there at the moment. Um, once in a while, they show up, actually, for a reasonable price. I even bought a copy of my own book on eBay once. <laughs> you ran I, out. <laughs> I did. I did. And it was, I think someone put one up for $40, and I snagged it immediately. Good so, call. Yeah. So those are your two books, Chasing Rainbows and Still Chasing Rainbows is yeah, the second book. Yeah, the second title is brilliant, Still Chasing Rainbows. It only took me about four or five years to think of that brilliant title. So I was very proud. And uh, like I said- When can I'm, we expect this, the, the revision of the first book? Ah, that's a good question. Um, hopefully within my lifetime. I've been working <laughs> on it for quite some time, and I always find one more blanket that I have to photograph. It should have been out about a year and a half ago. I'm still working on it. I'm hoping that it'll be in people's hands, oh, with luck, maybe a year from now, but there's also a problem now with printing and, and getting paper, and you know there's delays in the supply chain, so. You always can't, is. Yeah, you can't get a book printed as fast as you could uh, a while ago, it's difficult. You know, it'll stay in a container in a dock for a year or so. We'll see. But I am working on it very hard, and it's going to be spectacular. So can't wait to see it. Thanks. I think it's going to be really good. Are the blankets in in both books um, ones that you've sourced? Or are you going to other collections of these and and photographing as well? Well, I definitely have. Uh, relied on other collectors as well. So it is a compilation of both blankets that have gone through my hands uh, and also collectors who have been very kind uh, in cooperating. Uh, Dale Chihuly, the glass artist who has the largest collection of these blankets on earth, um, was kind enough to let me access his collection and um, Many, many, basically every important collector in the world has been very generous in sharing uh, their collection with me and allowing me to take photographs. So it's pretty comprehensive. Did you ever get the chance to meet any of the designers or people that ran some of these companies? Obviously, not from the era that you collect because that was a long, long, long time ago, but, you know, maybe some still early years did you ever get the chance to meet any of these people? Well, I would say that the uh, the last link to the era of blankets that I deal in was a very, very interesting gentleman named Mort Bishop Jr. And Mort ran Pendleton Woolen Mills for over 50 years. And I met him right around the time my first book was published, which was 1991, I believe. No, that's that's incorrect. It was later than that. I don't remember the year it was published. It was so long ago. But, uh, but Mort, I feared, Mort uh, owned Pendleton Woolen Mills. His family, the Bishop family, had owned Pendleton since 1909. And Mort was a pretty formidable man. He was an ex-Marine, and he ran his company with an iron fist. And he was sort of a great character. He had this fantastic voice. He sounded like, you know, he could have been in a John Wayne movie. And, uh, but he wasn't uh, someone that you, uh, you fooled with, you know. Uh, he, was a, he was one tough hombre. And so when my first book was published, I was very concerned that Mort would find issue with it. 
And so I got a call and I was told to meet him for dinner at a restaurant in California, which is where I was living at the time. And so I sat down with him, prepared for the worst. I just felt like he had perhaps found fault with something in the book and I was about to be read the riot act. And so he said, well, I've read your book. And I said, uh-huh. And he said, so I've got a couple things I want to tell you. And at this point, I was shuddering because I was expecting now an avalanche of criticism. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right. He said, number one, you know more about my family than anyone in my family. And number two, half the Pendleton blanket patterns in your book, I didn't even know that we made. And I'd like to order 5,000 copies of your book. Unbelievable. And then I uh, and then he paid for dinner as well. So <laughs> that went really well. That's so that, great. That was great. Mort was uh, really sort of a wonderful man, despite the uh, the rough exterior. Uh, and uh, he was the link to the blankets that I buy and sell. He was the last pioneer, I would say. Uh, everyone else, unfortunately, had passed away. Um, some of my earliest blankets were uh, purchased or acquired from the great-grandchildren of the blanket factory owners, but they were in their 80s at the time and since, unfortunately, have passed away, of course. So that era of people is gone. Um, so I was only able to meet maybe a few, uh, but... Uh, they were very important. They helped me a great deal with research and answering questions about their grandparents and their early recollections of the woolen mills. So that was fun. Very neat. All right, Barry, let's finish up here with uh, what we like to call the collector's gene rundown. Sound good? Yeah. All right. So these are just a quick list of questions. You can answer them short, long, however you feel, all right? Sure. All right. What's the one that got away? Is there a blanket that maybe went that uh, auction that you missed or that slipped through your fingertips? Well, definitely. Uh, but the ones that I really crave are blankets that I've seen pictures of, historical pictures from 1895, 1900, where I've never, ever seen the action. Excuse me. I've never seen the actual blanket in real life. I've just seen it in a picture. So I know they were made. But I've never seen one. So those are the ones that would thrill me to find. How about the on-deck circle? What's next for you in your collecting? Well, I think the revision of my book is my ongoing uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's my ongoing problem and uh, challenge. So I think that's sort of, you know, in collecting – I'm always excited about them. I never know what I'm going to get. It's serendipity. I might not get one for six months or I might get a hundred tomorrow. So that's always sort of interesting uh, because you have no control over something that is out there somewhere that may or may not find you. How about the unobtainable one that you can't have? Maybe it's too expensive or in another private collection. Well, there's no such thing as too expensive to a collector. Uh, if it's it, true. <laughs> yeah, if it's way beyond your means, you'll sell a major organ. You want both kidneys for that? Okay, let's do it. You know, a real collector finds a way to purchase anything 
even if it's ridiculously priced, if they want it really badly, they'll do anything. So what's unattainable? Again, it's stuff that, you know, I see pictures of, but I've never found. That's unattainable to me. So those are the ones I want. I don't really have regrets about things that I've missed or underbid or whatever. You know, I've had pretty much every major blanket at one time or another, and sometimes multiples of the same blanket. So, for example, there's a blanket called the Happy Hunting Ground which is the most valuable blanket there is. And I have four of those right now. Normally, I would have zero, and I would have zero for years. But suddenly, I have four. So I can't explain it. (laughs) That's great. How about the page one rewrite? So if you could collect one thing besides your current, what would it be and why? Oh, gosh. Uh, Money, no object. Yeah, money, no object. Uh, probably art. I think that's what everybody ends up collecting that has too much money because no matter how wealthy you are, there's never enough money to really collect art. Uh, you know, even billionaires come up short. So I probably do that just so I can feel, you know, uh, broke. So (laughs) (laughs) that's great. How about the goat? Who do you look up to in the collecting world? Uh, well, there's a lot of people that I look up to anyone with tremendous knowledge. And, uh, I would say in American Indian, uh, I have a friend named Mark Winter and Mark Winter is the champion, the, the, the unconquered expert on Navajo weavings. And there are some real, real scholars in this field, but they all defer to Mark. Mark owns a trading post in New Mexico called the Toadlina Trading Post. And uh, Mark is the authority on Navajo weaving. So, and uh, a very interesting person to boot. So I look up to him. Uh, There's another gentleman named Mark Sublette, who uh, was a doctor and actually was a doctor for the Phoenix Suns basketball team. And he decided that American Indian things appealed more to him than, than uh, healing, uh, I guess, uh, players. So he has a gallery called Medicine Man Gallery in Tucson, Arizona, and he's the most active person in the world. He writes books. He does podcasts. He buys and sells more American Indian goods than anyone on earth. No one knows how he can uh, do all this because there doesn't seem to be enough hours in the day, but he's a remarkable person. There's a lot of other people too. I mean, there's some great, great people in the field. There's great collectors in every field and great experts. And I admire anyone who devotes their time to learning everything they can about a certain field. I think it takes enormous determination. And and you're also, uh, you need an understanding wife or girlfriend. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. How about the chase or the sale? Do you enjoy the hunt more or the ownership? Oh, by far the hunt. You know, selling is the penance for buying. Uh, I don't think anyone loves selling that's in the collectible field. You know, I mean, you have to do it to sustain and keep going. But it's finding something that where the adrenaline just, you know, goes berserk. Uh, so once you have it, it's like, okay, I got that. Now what am I going to get next? You know, you sort of forget that you have it very quickly. Um, yeah, it's the hunt. And most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Yeah. Uh, 
I will fill any space you give me. So if you told me my new home with the Grand Canyon, come back in about two years and you will find it completely filled and overflowing. So, yeah, I am. Uh, I spend 24 hours a day either buying stuff, looking for stuff, desiring stuff, uh, trying to do anything I can to find the next item, whatever it might be. So I definitely have the collector's gene in a major, major way. I'm toxic. <laughs> Barry, it has been such a pleasure having you on. Truly, you are a wealth of knowledge in this stuff, and it's been really so much fun talking to you. And uh, now that I know that you're you're down the street, I'm, I'm going to have to come and see all this stuff in person. Absolutely. Come on over anytime. Appreciate it so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks so much. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collector's Gene Radio, signing off.